0: Before we start the show this week, I want to thank our sponsors at SeatGeek. Anthony and I love this app. Behind MLB at Bat, it's probably the most used app on my phone. I, I go to 50-plus games every summer, and almost every ticket I buy is through the SeatGeek app. I've been using it long before they started sponsoring us. Uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's basically a ticket aggregator for the secondary market. It ranks via a color-coded system which seats have the best value across multiple ticket brokers. You can get views from the seats and you can compare prices. So, like if someone is selling their ticket for hundred bucks in row five, you can see if someone from a different site is selling their seat for, I don't know, 90 bucks in row four. Even if I'm not going to a game, honestly, I'll sometimes just pop open the app and check it out just so I can see what ticket prices are going for across the country. Just trust me on this one. Download the app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Use the code Clubhouse and receive a $20 rebate on your first ticket purchase. Our show is always going to be free for you guys. We really would just appreciate it if you could support our sponsors a little bit. And it's just going to make your lives easier. On to the show. This week in the Clubhouse, Anthony and I are joined by baseball writer and podcaster Ben Lindbergh. Ben's knowledge and passion for baseball was too much to contain in just one episode. In part one of our conversation, Ben schools Anthony and I in the art of sabermetrics. Subscribe to the show on iTunes to make sure you are among the first to know when part two of this episode is released. Blue Jays win it! Touch them all, Joe! You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life! Down 20 strikeouts! He ties the Major League record!
1: There it goes! See ya! I don't believe what I just saw! He's out by five feet at the plate! And that was the
0: worst base running in the history of the game! Why Welcome to the show, everybody. It is a wonderful day for baseball. I'm Anise Chain, and sitting next to me, as always, is Mr. Anthony Rapp. Well, hello there. Our guest today is a prolific writer whose work you've read at 538 in Grantland. He served as editor-in-chief at Baseball Prospectus. He's the co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast, is the co-writer of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, a fantastic book. He is currently a staffer at The Ringer. He grew up a Yankee fan. But on today's show, we're going to talk a little more general baseball. So joining us in the clubhouse today, Ben
1: Lindbergh. Dog goes wild. Wow. Crowd goes <laughs> wild. Loud introduction in a small room. <laughs> yes, you, <laughs> you have. Uh, you fit almost all of my life history into that introduction. Did I miss anything? So, you have no, so. I mean, you have such it. a long lineage of, <laughs> of
0: of writing baseball for yeah. so many different people.
1: Yeah, I've fit it all into a, a pretty short span of time. But yes, I think you got all the all the high points at least.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, we have just way, 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 way too much to talk about because you are utterly fascinating to me. But. <laughs> the way we normally begin our our podcasts is kind of trying to figure out where your love of baseball began at its very beginnings. Mm -hmm. So if you could just kind of take us back to your earliest memories of coming to baseball, becoming a baseball fan. Was it a specific player, team, stadium? What was it that brought you into this lovely sport?
1: Yeah, I think my first memory is going to a Yankees game. I grew up in Manhattan, just a a few stops on the train away from Yankee Stadium. And my first memory is going to a game and buying a Blue Jays cap because I thought it looked cool and the Blue Jays were good at the time. And I guess I was just a, a bandwagon fan from the beginning. Do you remember their logo at the time? Because they had such such a variety yeah. of logos. It was it was like the old school bird, yeah. uh, just you know, clean looking blue yeah. and just like very appealing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm half Canadian, so maybe that was part of it. All right, <laughs> <laughs> so. That led... Eventually, I, I put that behind me and I kind of buried the the brief Blue Jays phase in my past because I became a Yankees fan. And as I mentioned, I was growing up very close to Yankee Stadium at a time when the Yankees were winning the World Series every year, essentially. Oh, yeah, of course, so yeah. I, you know, I, I guess I could have been a Mets fan, but that would have been quite a, a counter <laughs> counterculture choice, I suppose, based on where I was and, and who was good at the time. So... Yeah, I was a Yankees fan, and and I don't know how it happened exactly. No one in my family was a big baseball fan. No one is now, even. I had some friends who were big fans. I had a, a teacher in grammar school who was a big fan. Maybe that was part of it. But I think it was just that they won all the time. And it was <laughs> hard not to get caught up in that story.
2: So do you have a sympathy for bandwagoners all over the world then?
1: I do. I mean, look, we all lose in a lot of ways in our lives, right? So it's nice if you can win. And if you don't have, a, if you're not lucky enough to have a, a fan affiliation with a team that actually wins all the time or... You know, if, if you aren't a long, long-suffering Cubs fan like you or you don't have some really compelling story like that, then, yeah, I don't mind. I mean, if your team gets uh, eliminated, certainly I, I think you should find a team to root for. I think where bandwagoners get the, the worst name is the folks who—
0: If you remember back in like the 90s, uh, I think it was in the mid-90s or even early 90s, I remember they they had those big starter jackets, the big puffy starter jackets, Mm -hmm. and it would have the logos of the Cowboys, the Celtics, the Bulls, (laughs) and the Red Wings, I think, Uh and it was just one of those... All right, you're clearly like this is. There's a difference between hey, I'm gonna follow X team because they're winning, and I'm just going to follow exclusively the teams that are winning. As soon as they stop winning, I'm gonna now follow the new team that's winning. I think coming to a, a team and becoming a fan during their their winning years, I don't think that's bandwagon jumping. No, of course, I think that's just yeah. becoming a fan as as yeah, right. you know. It had no uh, choice. It, was, right. it, it exactly. was natural. And you know what? Look, when I was. Uh, we, we've discussed this uh, a couple times on, on the podcast. When I was a young lad, I was a secret Mariners fan. You know, uh-huh. I was a crazy, diehard Detroit, everything. But good Lord, the Tigers were just hot garbage for yeah. my entire childhood. <laughs> and and watching that, that Mariners team with Buner and Martinez and Martinez and Griffey mm-hmm. and then and, and Dan Wilson and Randy Johnson, like I loved. And then Ichiro? Well, by no. by the time Ichiro, I love, I look, I adore mm-hmm. Ichiro. By the time Ichiro came yeah. around, I A-ratted was. He
1: routed Weston. and yeah.
0: Well, yeah. actually, I jumped off of the Mariners when A-Rod come on, came uh, on. Okay. I, I've been an A-Rod hater since he was 19 <laughs> and a Mariner. So <laughs> yeah. I, I've been, yeah. I, I called that one super early. That's <laughs> that's when I kind of, my, my secret Mariners fandom melted away. And I, and my favorite Tigers theme of all time was that 2003, 119 loss <laughs> Detroit. Cause I lost, every, I watched every inning of that year and Ugh. loved them. Wow. But.
2: it's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. But so going back though, uh were
1: you watching other sports? Were you interested in sports in general? No. I, I've never really been able to reconcile my interest in baseball because I'm just very aware of how inconsequential the results of the games are. And I think <laughs> I'm happier now that I'm no longer a fan of any one team and I'm sort of interested in the sport kind of as an intellectual pursuit or, yeah. you know, the the drama and the the stories of all the players and that sort of thing. Yeah. but. I have never been a huge fan of other sports. Right. I, I like hockey. I will always watch a hockey game if it's on. Half-Canadians, you'll watch half a game. Maybe that's part of it, too. Yeah, it's in my blood, yes. other than that, no, I, I really I don't know even how people make time to know what's going on in every major sport because it seems like just keeping track of baseball takes up too much of my time.
2: So can you can you talk—was there one element of the game or an aspect of the game that captured your imagination or that you responded to well, or that you still respond to? Or-
1: Eventually it became the statistical side and sort of the analytical side of the game, which baseball is uniquely well-suited for. But that wasn't it initially. So I, I can't say that I was sitting there crunching numbers as an eight-year-old or anything. I, I was just watching the game like anyone else does. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been a baseball fan if I had grown up at a different place at a different time and hadn't had this dynasty in my backyard. Yeah. But
0: when you were a kid and... Uh So, first of all, did you collect baseball cards at all? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, when you collected the baseball cards, what was your ritual with the baseball cards? Would you just collect them and you wanted to collect teams or just players or did you use them for the stats or or what, what exactly did you use baseball cards for?
1: I definitely got introduced to stats that way. I think that's how almost everyone did look at the back of the baseball card. So. That was part of it, but I, I don't know. I, I guess I wanted to collect favorite players. I wanted to have full sets if I possibly could. I wasn't obsessive about it, but I you know—I put them in binders and sheets, and I tried to organize them by team and that kind of thing, and I'd put all the all-stars on their own page. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, I, uh, yeah, I really I enjoyed that. I still have those in a, in a cabinet or, or several cabinets. So, are there any of the early stats that you would read
0: on the back? So, just to to give an example, when when I was a kid, I would, you know, obviously the home run numbers were always, you know, if I saw a five, you know, if I saw a 50 plus home runs somewhere, mm-hmm. it would just blow my young brain. <laughs> right. Or if I ever got a card with someone who was batting 383, 94, and it would just, I would just hold on to those cards so tightly, and I'd be so uh, enamored by that. Or if I got a Frank Rob, if I got a a triple crown winning card or someone who had won two of the three triple crown stats. It was like that stuff like that would always blow my mind. And that's how I started. That was, that began my love affair with stats. I'm trying to just figure out where you went from kind of uh, the love of the game to now Longtime listeners of the show will know that uh, I am a representative of the old man curmudgeonly. (laughs) Uh uh, I'm not Uh anti-Saber metrics. Uh, I'm a member of Saber, but I'm not anti-Saber metrics. I'm just, I'm, I'm not as all in on it as as everyone else my age seems to be, mm-hmm. um, because for me, when I was a kid, I always said that I liked math because of baseball. I didn't like baseball because of math. Mm-hmm. And so the super simple stats or batting averages, your your you know uh, uh, on base percentage things of that nature, I can calculate those. But once you get into the wars and UZRs and blah 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 blah, right. I, I, I'm so completely gone. Yeah. Well,
1: very few of us can actually calculate them, but we can read them off a page. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes, and discuss them. Yes, right. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, I, I now I get lost in a stats page and you go to baseballreference.com and, you know, you can browse that for hours, days. There are certain guys who have the most compelling pages you can look up and you know, they have the black ink if you're a league leader or a major league leader, and you could go to Barry Bonds' page and just, you know, your <laughs> eyes will pop out of your head. Yeah, It wasn't really from baseball cards that I think I got that interest in math, and and I was more of a, an English person, writing person. You know, I was an English major in college. I wasn't really a, a math guy to any great extent. Writing was my strong suit, but— I found Baseball Prospectus at some point. I guess it was maybe through Rob Nyer, who was writing for ESPN at the time and was kind of the, the gateway to all of this more advanced analysis for a, a lot of people who were reading mainstream sites. And I found Baseball Prospectus, which I later joined and became the editor of. And I think this thing that set it apart was that the writing was really strong and it was funny and it had character and personality. So it wasn't just dry you know, stat sheets that was there. Obviously, you could look up all the stats that you wanted, but it was presented in a just a really readable, compelling way by people who liked baseball for the same reasons that everyone else likes baseball and knew the game's history and could appreciate the aesthetic appeal of it. So it wasn't really that intimidating. And so I, I got into BP. I started reading the site. They had a book called Baseball Between the Numbers, which sort of laid out the the sabermetric ethos, I suppose, and, you know, showed why certain beliefs about baseball were wrong or misleading in some ways. And I just got hooked on that. And I don't know whether I would still be as into baseball as I am if I hadn't found that new layer. It it was just very addictive. It was suddenly, hey, you know, I've been watching baseball my whole life, but there were a lot of things I didn't understand. And there's this whole other layer that... You can watch baseball for years and and not see. So I really, I don't know if I just wanted to be a know-it-all and be able to <laughs> say, actually, no, you can look at the stats and it doesn't support that opinion. But it was uh, just, I, I couldn't get enough of it. And I suppose I still can't. So how do you think
0: uh, advanced stats have changed the way you watch mm-hmm. baseball? Because you say you would have maybe not continued or at least maybe not have dedicated your life to it now. So advanced mm-hmm. stats clearly changed the way you watch. So I'm Ben Lindbergh and I'm sitting on my couch and I'm watching you know a ball game. Pre-being exposed to advanced stats and not yeah. post. How do you think that's affected the way you watch the game, how you you consume the game, etc.?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can still sit back and appreciate a game and, you know, it's not like the, the code from the Matrix is running through my <laughs> head as I'm watching the game or anything like that. It's, you know, I can watch for the same reasons anyone else watches and enjoy for the same reasons anyone else enjoys It's different now because I'm not really a fan of any particular team and I'm always approaching it as a writer or someone who could potentially get a topic out of this. And so, you know, do I see something that leads to a deeper question that might turn into an article someday? So that kind of is in my head as I watch baseball now which doesn't mean that I can't still just appreciate, you know, this, the aesthetic appeal of it. But I think part of it is that Sabermetrics kind of helps you quantify how unlikely certain events are. So you can appreciate when you're watching a game and you see something happen, you know, maybe you're you're looking at the team's win expectancy or something, which is basically a, a way of quantifying how likely that team is to win the game based on, you know, hundreds of thousands of other games and what's happened in the same situation in the past. And so if there's a comeback, I mean, everyone knows it's a, an exciting event, but you can say, oh, this is really rare. This only happens, you know, once out of however many times. And maybe a lot of people listening are saying, who cares? Who needs to know exactly the numbers? <laughs> and that's fine. Not everyone does. But for me, for some reason, it, it really appeals to me to to know that. So, uh,
2: you know, the the term clutch. Uh Um, I think that my my presumption is that most sabermetrics people think that's bogus, there's no such thing as clutch.
1: They don't believe that it's a repeatable skill generally, right? So it it happens, obviously, in, in certain seasons. Some teams or players are clutch. I mean, it happens. They perform in these clutch situations. But from year to year, there doesn't seem to be that much consistency in it. So if you say that something is a skill, generally that means you should be able to do it more than once that if you do it in 2016 you should be able to do it in 2017 right. and that doesn't really happen with with clutch performance you know with batter batting average with runners in scoring position or however you want to quantify that it really does shift a lot from year to year
2: but there are aren't there like i believe that there's some quantifiable thing of you can look at you know late game situations you know a game go ahead or game tying Situations, and that there are certain players that seem to have more consistent
1: results in some of those situations than others. It's hard to say. I mean, you need such a large sample of performance to statistically be able to say, oh, this is definitely a real ability that this guy has. Because if you have thousands of players, then just by chance, some of them are going to perform better in these clutch situations than other situations, right? Just randomness, you know, some guys will get that hit in that spot, other guys won't. And so if you have this large population of players, there will be some number just, you know, coin flipping, whatever it is, that these guys will appear to be clutch. There are certain guys who definitely have, you know, incredible performances in the postseason, or whether it's David Ortiz or Carlos Beltran's stats in October are insane. So, you know, we can't really say— We can't look inside his soul and say, oh, he is more calm in these situations (laughs) than someone else does. All we can say is that, well, yeah, he really has produced incredibly well in these spots in the past. Will he this year if he's in the postseason? I don't know, but he's done it before.
2: And what about chemistry? Sport, yeah, that's you know. gonna go for And you know, because yeah. I like you, the, the listeners to the podcast know that my my um, brother in law is a former, former ball player, mm-hmm. um, Hal Morris. Mm-hmm. So I've talked to him about some of these kind, all these questions. He's now a scout for the Angels, so he he's looking at statistical stuff. He's also doing the eye test, like he yeah. he's doing all sorts of things. You know, mm-hmm. um, I know that the scouting department of the Cubs they look so much at like at the character, like the character of the of the players that they're scouting. They're not just yeah. looking at the numbers. You know, right? And it seems like to me also as an actor and I think about chemistry of a cast you know yep. how could that not inform or affect performance on the field you know and I know that it seems to me that sabermetrics people tend to not to undervalue or or think that you can't since you can't quantify such a thing, it's not worth talking about.
1: right. Yeah, I think that's changing a little bit these days. That was definitely the case 10, 15 years ago where just because we couldn't put a number on chemistry we would say it doesn't exist or at least there's there's no point in talking about it because we can't analyze it. That's changing a bit. I think we're all really interested in it. I think, you know, I I wouldn't discount it because when every player says it matters, then, you know, that kind of suggests that it it might matter, right? I mean, there are definitely cases where the numbers have kind of refuted or, or at least gone against something that baseball people have been saying forever. But there are a lot of cases where, you know, coaches and players have been saying something forever and the stats totally back them up. So I don't discount the possibility that, you know, chemistry can influence the way a team plays. The, the thing that, you know, the sense that I've gotten from talking to people with teams is that the problem is it's not really that predictable. You know, you can't say going into the year, If we put this group of guys together, they are really going to gel well and they're going to get, you know, plus two wins from getting along together, you know, liking each (laughs) other. Well, here's my question then. (laughs)
0: Why does it need – and I'm sorry about this, but why does it need – why do you need to put a number in everything? I think ultimately uh, the line that I use Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, for for – Look, this is a sport that I've also dedicated my life to and I've loved since I was a young, young lad. And But look, at the end of the day, we're all grown-ass men. We're all adults here. You know, we're watching this, this essentially, a bunch of other grown men wearing pajamas, hitting yes. a ball with a stick. Right. Yes, yeah, you know the line. <laughs> it's, it's a silly, stupid game. Mm-hmm why does everything have to be so rigidly predictable you know why do we have to sit here because i here's the deal i there's certain aspects of saber saber sabermetrics that i do i love whip i love you know there there are certain stats that i think are absolutely fantastic at breaking down the game a little bit more and helping us understand the game more and Mm -hmm. i i feel that uh, sabermetrics eventually could come up with a lot of great new stats that that will help us break it down but I'm glad to hear you say that finally chemistry is something that sabermetricians are starting to look at because I'm telling you, for the last decade, all of my saber friends just incessantly <laughs> mock me. Uh-huh. I just went to a game in, in L.A. a couple months ago with a buddy of mine who's a crazy saberhead. And for two and a half hours, he just mocked me incessantly for my magic thinking about about <laughs> baseball, yeah. about how, you know, because my whole theory is and you've spent a lot of time in clubhouses, mm-hmm. you know, as have I. And and I've been around ballplayers and I've spent time with ballplayers before wins, after wins, after World Series after they've won, after they lost, et cetera, et cetera. And. Look, 162 games plus the postseason, the mental component cannot be just completely denied. Cannot sure. be, It can't be quantified, but it can't be just dismissed either.
1: Yeah, and I think both sides of that debate, if it is a debate, can go too far and take Agreed. it to an extreme. You know, I think— the Sabre people, at least in the past, have been guilty of dismissing it and saying it doesn't matter at all. I think that's too extreme a perspective. On the other hand, you can attribute <laughs> everything a team does to <laughs> these guys, you know, they like each other, they are gritty, right, they get right. along, you know, and you, and... <laughs> 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 no, that's, the, the, the
0: idiots in 2004, the, the collection of sure, the red, that's always right. the go-to. No, I disagree with that, by the way, as well. right. I think that's
1: stupid. And often it's like, you know, yeah, maybe, but these guys are also really good players, right. and there are many examples of teams that didn't get along and didn't like each other and we're yes. very good at baseball. So I don't think we can chalk up everything or nothing. Yeah, to and similarly, chemistry. like,
2: it's, you know, there's romantic leads who hate each other and then sure, they have right. tremendous chemistry on screen. And but I think happens, ultimately, you though, you
1: know.
0: that's that's where um, I fall less on the sabermetric, sabermetric side. So unless I'm wrong, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it, I'm okay with not being able to make grand statements, like, general not grand is the wrong word, but generalized statements where mm-hmm. I don't think that, yes just because a team has good chemistry means they're going to win. I look at more on on a case-by-case basis. So I Mm -hmm. look at this team, and I either spend time with that team or I watch that team or I listen to the analysis of the team and the beat writers, et cetera, and I try to figure out, all right, well, this is a team that clearly is getting along. A lot of my buddies who are still beat writers with the Tigers have been telling me all season that it's just been not a great uh, atmosphere in that clubhouse. Yeah, and I've now be, since been in the Tigers' clubhouse maybe four or five times this season, and every time I've been in there, it has felt off. Like it, it the the funness that was there in 2006, 2007, Fun, two thousand six, two thousand seven, funness. Yeah, it's a word. Walk away. I, I you know. I, I, I know
2: what English major funness funness <laughs> college yeah. dropout borderline college dropout. Come on now, I'll do what I can. Yeah, but, yeah,
0: but, I, but 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 the uh, it's it's I just. I think there is something to be said that when you have to do something with the same group of guys for eight months a year that while, yes, it is absolutely possible to hate each other and still win. I think that uh, I mean, and Joe Madden's the perfect example of this. I mean, he takes I mean, the Cubs don't count because you guys just have ninety five million <laughs> rookie of the year MVP Cy Young candidates. Right. But what he do with the Rays, you mm-hmm. know, with a constant revolving door of who is this mm-hmm. yet still being able to put a great team on the field. I think that does have a lot to do with the atmosphere that he created.
1: Mm-hmm. That yeah, class. I mean, it definitely could. On the other hand, you can look at what he did with the Rays. And, you know, there was a, fa- a famous, uh, I think it was 2008, right, when they went from being the Devil Rays to the Rays. And mm-hmm. Baseball Prospectus, Nate Silver, who's now the the big political pundit, was with Baseball Prospectus at the time. He designed Baseball Prospectus' projection system, which is called Pacoda And he called the Rays. You know, he said, oh, these guys who have been terrible their whole franchise's life— they're going to be really good this year because they did some things that kind of went under the radar over the offseason. They really improved their defense. They really just redid their whole, you know, defensive aspect of the game. They brought in all these relievers, and Picota predicted that the Rays were going to be great that year, and, and they were, and no one was really saying that at the time. So, anyway, as you were saying about chemistry, I think it can be hard to evaluate from afar. Yes. I think if you're just watching on TV and you're trying to judge by body language or, you know, who's talking to who in the dugout, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's no, not, that, that's that's silly. That's not, that's projection. Yes, there. Yeah. yeah, and even if you go into clubhouses, I mean, if you are a beat writer, if you're with the team every day, I'm sure you get a pretty good perspective. When I go into a clubhouse, you know, unless there's a fight breaking out or something, like I, I don't know that I get that great a sense right away, so that I can make a snap judgment and say, oh, this team is close. I did an article a few years ago where I looked at how every team was described in spring training and i found that every team was said to have good chemistry yeah. by you know a beat writer or someone who was covering the team or someone with the team i could find a quote for every single team that said you know this is a great group of guys and we're all getting together and we're doing all these spring training activities and you know i've never seen chemistry this great and then the season starts and some teams win and sometimes some teams lose and it seems like often those teams that started out with pretty good chemistry suddenly they're losing all the time they're in last place they're not getting along and then now you know there's brush fires breaking out and there's quarrels and disputes and now this team has bad chemistry so it does seem like there's a bit of a but chicken it's a fluid and egg thing, thing but going it's, all, on. Yeah.
0: it's a, yeah it's a fluid thing i, I yeah. don't once again i don't think that in, in game 1 of the season if if you have good chemistry once again that's going to help you for right. me the the and the word is now losing all its meaning but the word <laughs> chemistry uh, I think it, it's more defined on when you are doing bad. I think that's when mm-hmm. I want to look at a team chemistry. Because, yeah, of course, when you're doing well, everyone's going to be having fun even if they hate each other. But yeah. it is when you go through those five game losing streaks in July where you're like, you know, what's happening here or or nine game losing streaks? Do you bounce back or do you let that corrode and and eat
2: into the rest of your year? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also this thing to me, it it seems pretty clear, though, that you have to have some kind. there's such a thing as belief. If -hmm. you're if you're on a team and you are look, you do look, the players themselves are looking at statistics all the time, too, of course. Yeah. And they know how they're doing and they know what their win loss record is. But If they don't believe they can do the comeback in the ninth inning, on a Uh certain level, you would think that that how can that not affect them on the field on a certain level? You know, if if it's so, it's like that is also chicken the egg. You have to you have to have the experience to believe you can have the experience, but then if you don't, you know what I mean? It's it seems to me yeah that that can't it has to have some kind of effect.
1: You would think so, right? (laughs) I mean, I think the thing that kind of gets with me and maybe some of the other people who approach the game the way I do, you know, we were talking about clutch before and are kind of, if there is such a thing as a default stance on this, it's that every baseball player is pretty clutch, you know, because they had to be Major League Baseball players, which means that they've gotten through every level of amateur ball. They've made it through the minor leagues. You know, they have the work ethic. They are able to remain calm enough in this situation that they've gotten to this point or they would never make it, right? And there are always thousands of people watching every at-bat at every time. There's always pressure. So, you know, in a certain situation, there might be slightly more pressure than there is in another situation, but all these guys are proven pressure performers. And I don't think you get there if you are just a a choker and you're just going to fall apart, you know, because the bases are loaded and it's two outs, that kind of thing. So I just kind of think that all of these guys have been through the crucible and, you know, there might be a few here and there who are just even at a higher level than everyone else, but who can identify them you know before we've had several seasons to to see that they perform well in these spots so that's kind of what it comes down to me like you know all of these guys have that mindset all of these guys are competitors and they believe in themselves cuz They've proven that they belong at this level. And so that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. You know, it's like if you is, or I were thrust into this situation, we'd be falling apart. And so <laughs> as we think about being in that situation, we're kind of using our own constructs for how we would feel in this situation. And these guys are just on another level. I but, think.
0: but I guess then that's, that's a very good point. But here's my question for you then. Do you put any stock in – sometimes they're just having a bad day where sure. sometimes their kid, you know, ran over the dog or, oh, or yeah. their wife, you know, got mad at him for whatever or the the father whatever like there's there's a million different reasons that you could be you're sitting in there taking 500 at bats a year and I'm so you are not focused 100% of your energy on all 500 you your brain would explode if you had to put that much so is there something to be said about okay now I am someone who can well, yes, we're all on the same level at a certain level that we can be at this game. We can hit a a you know 85 mile per hour curveball after seeing a 99 mile per hour fastball. We 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 can do all these things. Yeah. But in October, when it's bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, you know, two outs, and I, you know, if we don't, uh, if I don't get a base hit here, our season's over. But my mind is anywhere but this game because i just can't seem to focus Mm -hmm. do you put and once again i know that's not predictable and i know you can't it's just so impossible to see but do you put any stock in that whatsoever
1: I I believe that it exists. I guess the question is, can we identify it? Because how many times in a career will a player be in that situation where you know the season is hinging on what he does? Well, maybe maybe that's too bat, dramatic. Right? But even yeah. just
0: a game, or right. uh, so so you know, yeah. When we talk about clutch, it's oftentimes not that yeah. it is. Yeah,
1: runners in scoring position right. in the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
0: so that happens more often. Yeah. So in those I mean, situations,
1: these guys are not robots. I think they're they're <laughs> closer to robots than we are, maybe, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I agree with that. How many times have we read the story about, you know, so-and-so was sick with the flu and, you know, he came back to the dugout and he was throwing up the whole game, but he pitched a complete game shutout anyway, you know, whereas but you know what? and you I, think, I, we're in bed, you know, like we're not even playing
0: in that game. Here's my theory on that, though. I think, especially for baseball, I mean, Jordan's obviously the the, the right. you yes. know, uh, quintessential uh, example of that, but for, for sports in general, I think that's uh, – so a couple nights ago, watching the Tigers game, um, they always do the player of the game. We're gonna predict the player of the game in the first second inning. Uh-huh. I can't remember who it was. Someone was sick. I think it was have been Cameron Mabin. Someone was sick, and they're like, "Oh, we're picking Cameron Maybin because he's sick." And anytime <laughs> people are sick, they always you know do well. Yeah. And once again, even though I'm sure there is some article written about if it's predictable or not, I think it's because they're so in like outside of their head as far as they're not focusing on the at-bat, they're focusing on I'm going to vomit, I'm going to vomit, I'm going to (laughs) vomit, bam, home run, because I'm not thinking, what is this pitch going to be? There's so much out of your head that you can Uh actually play better. Yeah,
1: it could be. I mean, maybe there's a a little bit of a selective sample going on there where we hear the story about how sick they were when they were the hero, you know, and they hit the home run. If they go 0 for 4 with 4Ks, we don't even (laughs) hear about it. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, it can be useful to kind of get out of your head in that situation. And if you're concentrating on not throwing up, maybe you're just kind of letting your reflexes take over when you're at the plate, that kind of thing.
0: Because, yeah, they are robots. I mean, at a certain yes. point, it is. They've, <laughs> they've, they've, they've taken however many millions of, right. of cuts in, in a batting cage over their careers. So it's... Exactly. We're just going to take a brief break so that I can tell you how to get in touch with Anthony or me. You can follow us on Twitter at ClubhousePod. Visit our website, clubhousepodcast.com, for extensive links and information about some of the baseball moments we discussed on the show. There are also photos from our cross-country road trip for you to peruse at your leisure. We love hearing from our listeners and getting you involved with the discussion, so please email us at clubhousepodcast at gmail.com. Tell us about your favorite baseball stories, your favorite baseball films, why your team or ballpark is so special, or honestly, just if you want to say hello if you are a new listener to the clubhouse podcast welcome for more great baseball conversations take a look at our archives like our chat with emmy award-winning actor john ham in this clip john explains how much of a baseball nerd he is by recounting a day where he listened to the radio broadcast of a 30 year old
2: ball game i listened to almost the whole game like i started <laughs> listening to it and i was like i kind of got into it and i was like oh my god like this is crazy but you listen to it and there is it's such a different rhythm like, it is so much less wall to wall sound. Yeah. Other than the sound of the game, yeah. you know, of the crowd and of the things. Like, that's kind of ambient. It's not foxed out. It's just very, it's very pleasant. And you could understand why, like, that was a lovely thing to do. Like, it's relaxing, it's fun. And this is a very exciting game. And it, by the end of it, it, it ramps up, but it has—it's this, this really cool. It's—it's it's an interesting thing to do. I think if you—if you've got a spare three hours and you want to <laughs>
0: listen to some old baseball. And now back to our conversation with Ben
2: Lindbergh. Um, one one sabermetrics thing that I just don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> There's one that I just don't understand. Okay fielding independent pitching yeah it makes my head explode what <laughs> is like cuz by design you have fielders and they should be able to catch the baseball right it makes no sense to me
1: that that's something that you'd value well uh, not everyone's fielders are the same right so right, some of guys course. have good fielders some guys yeah, have bad course, fielders yeah of course
2: but but i'm sorry but like why is that on the pitcher i'm sorry that well, makes no sense to me well it's if a, you have a shitty Pardon me. Right. Sorry, bleeping. <laughs> if you have a bad third baseman, him why fired is it up. your fault if he muffs the ball all the
1: time and it's, you're the pitcher? It's not. That's the that's exactly what fielding independent pitching is for. It's to Try to strip out the effect. Of no, that. it isn't. Because is. if you're
2: if you're hitting if you have a if you're a ground ball pitcher, <laughs> right. your, your fielding independent pitcher's numbers are going to be terrible relative to somebody who strikes out a million people. There are but both can be really effective ways to pitch.
1: Yes, I mean on the whole, I, I think you know strikeout pitchers tend to be more effective, at least in a single season. Over the long run, because they don't need to rely on fielders, they don't need the ball to be put in play. Once the ball is put in play. Guys can make errors, you know, the ball can just drop in between fielders through no fault of anyone. But if you can prevent the ball from being put in play, I think the best pitchers strike guys out, they don't walk guys, and they don't allow a lot of home runs. And that's what fielding independent pitching is based on. It's just what's your strikeout rate, what's your walk rate, what's your home run rate. And the best pitchers tend to be good at all of those things. And there are certain guys that FIP or stats like that will miss on because they will be very good at, say, inducing weak contact. Weak contact, contact. yeah. yeah. So. yeah. It, there are definitely cases like that. You know, like Matt Cain was a, a guy like that who was known for that for a while. Marco Estrada, more recently with the Blue Jays, has had very low batting averages on balls in play. Yeah, That is kind of—it it. falls a little bit into the clutch camp in some cases because <laughs> there are guys who demonstrate that ability year after year, and they really can, you know, get good results when the ball is put in play. There are other guys who just get lucky, you know, and for one year, they get a bunch of bloopers or bleeders that fall in or don't fall in. And that ability to prevent balls in play from being hits is just not that consistent from one year to the next. Like, strikeout rate, very consistent. If you strike guys out in one year, you're probably going to strike out guys the next year. Same with walks and home runs, that kind of thing. But how guys hit when they put the ball in play— that varies a lot because you know whatever the fielders can be positioned in a certain place the, you know the ball can fall in or not fall in a guy can mishit it and get a swinging bunt that yeah, kind but, of thing so, so if you
2: but if you talk like I, so I recently read Roger I've been reading Roger Angel's book as yeah. we were talking before off yeah. the air mm-hmm. um, and he he did this whole chapter on talking to catchers uh-huh. you know and the catchers are they know what pitch is going to get thrown they're, they're communicating with their fielders the likelihood of if this pitch is thrown the way that they're asking for it to be thrown that the likelihood of the, what they know about the hitter that they're probably going to hit it in this direction. So if the fielders are positioned correctly, so that's uh, that is all by design, by right. the team's design. So if somebody's penalized as mm-hmm. a pitcher for doing what they all decide to do together, I think that's unfair. Yeah. I just think it's patently unfair. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean there are <laughs> definitely cases where these stats oversimplify and, and miss things. That's the case. Uh, anyone I think would admit that. But the fact is that you know if you look at what a guy's fielding independent pitching number is thus far this season. It predicts what his ERA will be for the rest of the year better than his ERA to this point in the year. So it does give you a better sense of his skills and, you know, whether he'll continue to sustain this performance going forward. And that's not to say there aren't exceptions. There are guys who beat this year after year. There are also guys who beat it one year and everyone says, oh, you know, this guy can induce weak contact and he has this special ability – And then the next year, he doesn't. Like, if you look at Pedro Martinez, when he was the best pitcher we've ever seen, like, you know, 1999, 2000, there was one year where he allowed, like, a 220 or something batting average on balls in play. That was, you know, and then the very next year, it was over 300 or something. Even though he was still awesome, still Pedro Martinez, still striking tons of guys out, not walking anyone, not allowing homers. But these results on balls in play, they really do fluctuate a lot. You know, there's a lot of, randomness. I think that's kind of the the biggest insight that maybe Sabermetrics gives you is that, you know, just this stuff it just happens. And, you know, <laughs> there that's why it's good that there are 162 games in a season, because you do get a pretty good sense of how good guys are and how good teams are over that span of games. But you know, when you get to the postseason and you're talking about like 19 games maximum it's really hard to predict anything just because sure. you know so much randomness happens in baseball.
0: Yeah. Of and real quick, I want to make sure that that you don't feel attacked here. That, <laughs> no, I didn't no, no. no, no, no. realize space. By, by, we're by, just by, having by a us, I, just, I literally just realized. I was like, you know, it's it's we invite you on our show just to yell at you about everything <laughs> yes, that you've done. the, no, the, spokesman no. for the <laughs> <community>. Yeah, we, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we're not
2: putting that all on you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's, F- it's, it's, FIP is the one that makes me. Like say, for me,
0: for me, one the once again, I, I, I will not. But then when I would get all riled up about is just all the defensive metrics are you uh-huh. I, like the defensive metrics to me uh, absolutely drive me nuts because it is so much to de- you know dependent on positioning and on just yeah. so many different things that are unquantifiable right and then you've got and then <laughs> all right before i get in a minute can you quickly in 30 seconds or less uh-huh. explain
1: war to me <laughs> in a way that a five-year-old could understand it Sure. Yeah. I mean, war wins above replacement player. It's just an attempt to quantify everything a player does and roll it up into one number and say he was worth this many wins over a replacement player, which basically is just, you know, the guy you can call up for AAA from AAA. He's like the worst guy in the majors or the best guy in AAA who's just kind of available. Anyone can grab him. And so it it rolls in everything we can try to assess. So, you know, if you're a pitcher, it it accounts for your pitching. If you're a hitter, it's trying to account for your offensive performance, your defensive performance, your base running. And, you know, it's just sort of a framework and, and we're trying to get better and better at evaluating these things from year to year. But it's an attempt to boil a player down to one number. That thank you for using that word right there.
0: The word mm-hmm. attempt. No, I'm serious about this because I think it is. Once again, the way I feel about sabermetrics in general is I think it's wonderful in theory. Uh-huh. I think sabermetrics is awesome in theory, and I think eventually it will do a lot of good for this game. But right now, I think that it is still being developed. You know, we're trying to figure sure. out. Yeah because right now well, there's so many different variations of war, for instance, that who mm-hmm. knows B or F or et cetera, et cetera. What right. war are you even using that when you start trying to now make absolute real changes to the game, as far as who's getting into the hall of fame or who's winning MVPs or who's winning Cy Young's depend. I mean, I, I and I know you're not one of these people, but I, I know a lot of sabermetrics people in my life or articles that I've read or writers or prominent people that when it comes down to MVP voting, it's just clear, well, he's got the best war or mm-hmm. he's got the best, you know, whatever. And so he clearly needs to be the, right. you know, the MVP or whatever. And that drives me up a wall. Yeah. Obviously, the most glaring version of that would be the 2012, you know. Uh, uh, Trout
1: Cabrera. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, the,
0: the the Triple Crown versus Mike Trout and taking zero away from Mike Trout. Mike Trout is a phenomenal, wonderful, amazing if he continues on the path, he's going first ballot Hall of Famer. Sure. But oh boy. And, and it stinks because I'm decked out in Tigers gear. So people just assume that I'm being a homer. But I swear to God and Anthony, you know this. Like I'm not, I know. When, when I take my Tigers hat off, I will be crazy objective. And I will be very critical and very honest about the Detroit Tigers but triple crown over whatever, like that's that's first. That's that's when I looked at the base back of baseball cards when I was yeah. a kid.
1: The triple crown was something that was never gonna happen again. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we could dredge up that four-year-old debate again. Oh, no, we won't. We won't. Or or no, we, we won't. But have no. the, the 2016 Mike Trout MVP debate if you want. But you know what? You're right. Year, actually, there's a different one. That's but, a, um, that's actually
0: a great one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Trout this year is putting up ridiculous numbers. Right. His team is garbage.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a attempt to have some sort of objective system that we can look at and say this guy was worth this much. And it gives, I think, an impression of false precision because you look it up and it says, well, this guy was worth 5.7 wins. And we're not saying he was definitely worth exactly 5.7 wins. We're saying that's the best estimate. And maybe he was worth four, maybe he was worth seven. He probably wasn't worth 10 or two. Like we're trying to get closer and closer. But, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some leeway. There are definitely some some error bars around those estimates. I think it's as good a system, really, as as any. You know, if you're evaluating a Hall of Fame player, I mean, r- usually there's not a, a huge difference in how these stats view a player and how the kind of consensus views a player. You know, for the most part, if the stats say someone is a Hall of Famer, everyone will say, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. There are some edge cases where one method will say something and and the other method won't, and those will cause a big debate. For the most part, there's a lot of agreement, really. And yeah, I mean, we're getting better at these things all the time. We're not great at evaluating defense yet. We're getting there. But, you know, who is great at evaluating defense? You know, like it's an attempt to say, well, this guy was worth this many runs on defense because he caught this many balls in this part of the field. And the average fielder catches, you know, this percentage of balls hit there and this guy caught that percentage of balls there. So, you know, should I trust that or should I just... The guy who watched, you know, twenty games from his couch and <laughs> saw this player make a really great catch once, or make a really bad play once, and formed an right. impression based on that. So, you know, we all have these biases and kind of incomplete pictures of players. So, I don't think that, you know, if you say, "Well, war isn't perfect," sure, but you know, fan X's opinion isn't perfect either. Of course right? not. So, right. Right.
2: know And. How do you, how does war work for retroact like looking back that's at Roger's Hornsby? Yeah, yeah, I, it's uh, do it at
1: all. it's less precise, right? So now there are people who watch every single play and they say, well, it was hit here, and they you know click a mouse on a diagram and that's sure. right, right, and they time how long it was in the air, that sort of thing. In the past, it's just based on plays made, basically. So you had this many assists, you had this many putouts. You know, maybe your your staff allowed this many grounders and fly balls. There's some adjustment there. So it's it's based on more rudimentary statistics. But yeah. you know, over a large enough sample, if a guy was making tons of plays, that's a pretty good indication that he's a good fielder. Sure. So yeah. it's not as precise as as it is now. And, yeah. and now there's this, you know, stat cast system, yeah. which is in, in every ballpark since the beginning of last season, and that's tracking with radars and cameras every movement yeah. every player makes on the <laughs> <Yeah>. field. <laughs> yeah. And so we're still figuring this out. We're still trying to, you know, translate this enormous deluge of data into stats. But in theory, at least that will give us a, a much it seems more precise like measure. That, it seems
2: like that's really great for defense. Yes,
1: that's going to be probably to, the, yeah. the biggest area of improvement. Yeah. And I yeah.
0: agree with that. Like I said, and once again, in five, ten years, right. when we're at that place, I will... I will admit it now. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you at some point in my life I will be on your side like <laughs> okay. I'm not gonna be who I am forever. I, cause yeah. I with every passing year, I get closer and closer to your side because I once again i I do i I want to learn more about the game I want to be accurate. I want to be you know I, I want all of that. It's just my my reticence to jump on board and I think it's more about and I will admit this is probably a fault on me and not anybody else of me not looking necessarily at the actual numbers and listening to the vehicles in which they're being shouted at me. <laughs> yes, and right. and so I think I may have, I've, have come yeah, across you might,
1: some, <laughs> the stats might be getting distorted in translation there, but I think yeah. that might be it.
0: I think I'll have conversation with folks and it just devolves yes, into, right. into, you know, a, a mocking, you know, a uh, fight with one another, but so I think ultimately that's that's where I land on this issue, where, where I think sabermetrics is a phenomenal thing, once again, in theory. And as we move forward, I think it's going to be even more and more integrated in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, as of now, is there something about the game that you wish you could
1: capture with a stat, but you can't? Gosh, I mean, I, I guess we've already talked about a few of those areas, right? I mean, we're every year. It seems like we're getting closer to being able to quantify these things that weren't quantifiable before. You know, like in the last few years, the the big innovation has been catcher framing stats and catcher receiving stats. And again, this was something that people have been saying for a century that certain catchers can help you get more strikes by you know receiving the ball in in such a way that they make a ball look more like a strike you know whatever it is they're quiet behind the plate they give the umpire a good view of the of the pitch and you know the early sabermetricians said no way you know there's no way we see no evidence of that then we got more precise stats that were tracking the location of every pitch and now we can say oh yeah some of these guys are really good at that and they're really valuable and Everything the players were saying was true, so <laughs> I, you know
2: we're, we're getting. Imagine that. What, what's, yeah. but to what's, what's an example
1: of something you said that that sort of refutes the the conventional wisdom that. But, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if you want to talk about the the triple crown stats, I mean, that's kind of the, the go-to example, right, is that <laughs> it's just not a great way to uh, evaluate a player's performance, right? You know, like, judging a guy based on how many runs he drives in, you know, sure, like, the best players are probably going to drive in more runs, but— You know, it's just dependent on so many things other than the player's performance. It's dependent on where he hits in the lineup and who's hitting in front of him and timing and and all of this stuff. And so you can have guys who don't have great RBI totals who are having fantastic seasons and guys whose RBI totals are inflated. You know, like someone like Albert Pujols this year. Of course, he was the best player we've ever seen in his prime. Now, not so much, but he's still driving in tons and tons and tons of runs. Because Mike Trout is batting in front of him. And Mike Trout gets on base more than any other player in the major leagues. So, of course, he's going to drive in some runs. But I think runs. people do look at that. I think I don't think you do
0: just look at the star. I think they do understand. I think they do break down who is hitting in front of him and how and, and, and whatnot. Because and, I think some players uh, who do drive in a lot of runs, some of it is – I mean, we'll look at a guy like Curtis Granderson. Who, mm-hmm. who You know, Granderson this year, he's, <laughs> the man's it's got, so you know, I mean, as of this recording, some like 28, 29 home runs and like right. – maybe four RBI. I don't know how that worked, <laughs> but like it's just he seems to have negative RBI based on yeah. how many solo shots he gets. And yes, he's a leadoff hitter, but still even leadoff hitters, you know, are are gonna drive in more runs, you know, eventually you only lead off once in the game. After that, you should presumably have guys on base. So I I think that is a part of the discussion that when mm-hmm. you're looking at them, you don't just I think with the triple crown numbers, if you can lead in all 3 at once, I think that's just once again I think that's that's You're definitely
1: good. <laughs> you can't yes. do that without being really good. Exactly. But and <laughs> yeah. it's so rare, so it's how not how not at least was. a little special. Exactly. Yeah. So, ultimately,
0: you know. when I go back to Grown Man Pajamas ball stick, sure. etc., that's that's it's it, the romanticism of the game, you know, that's ultimately I do put a lot of stock in that. Like ultimately this is a romantic game, this is a wonderful game, this is a a game that I can share with with my my partner with my, I don't have, but my hypothetical children with mm-hmm. my my whoever, yeah. and and to be able to say you know he did something, well like you were saying yes sabermetric shows that you can do certain things my my Tim Kershin stats as I like to call them you know uh-huh. like the super specific.
1: <laughs> you know uh, yeah. that's yeah that's uh, yeah a lot of people think of that when they think of sabermetrics they think of like you know these like really extreme splits like well what does he do in the seventh inning in night games <laughs> against a right handed pitcher you know like which I love those stats yeah. I genuinely love those stats those right. are always my favorite those are not sabermetrics like those are, <laughs> those are <laughs> sabermetricians would say that is meaningless <laughs> right and that's okay. kind of well, because it's such yeah. a small sample size right. it's just a, it's I mean, just a it, it might be cool like yeah, it's, it's good trivia yeah. but
2: yeah. yeah. think I, yeah. I ultimately
0: that's what I'm getting at, though. Yeah, sure. Sometimes you just want something
2: cool. Sometimes right. yeah, you just want sure, something on course. the playground
0: to joke about and to laugh about, and that's what's really going to get you.
2: I, I mean, I do think like, there's such an old game that there's still things happening that have never mm-hmm. happened before. Yeah, it's oh, pretty yeah. crazy. It's amazing, Absolutely. yeah.
1: There are unique pitching lines all the time. When it, yeah. my, my co-author and podcast partner, Sam Miller, was doing a series once where he would just note when there was a unique pitching line, and it was like – several times a week you know many times a week like there would be a a starting pitcher who had a line or a relief pitcher who had a line that's never happened before that's in awesome that's like i really hundreds do like hundreds of years that. of baseball yeah. it's incredible yeah. all the time things are happening yeah. that have never happened before i mean
2: yeah the reds last night set an all-time record for the number <laughs> yes. of home runs allowed in a season yes all time already and the season's not even over yeah. well that like, that's amazing uh, uh, all
0: right i want to get to that in a second because it's a, i think you just wrote an article about this particular topic I but, have but, that but time, yeah. um but i want to uh uh the, the kind of before we move on to to that um just kind of do you think that how do you think that the inclusion of all these advanced stats have affected the general fans experience so not the folks that are sitting in this room who Mm -hmm. we are all and as much as i made decry sabermetrics i i you know uh i'm a baseball nerd to the nth degree and so i it's more more semantics as to why I, I may or may not like it. But for someone who is maybe only catching a couple of games a year, going to mm-hmm. a couple of games, you know, at their local ballpark or, or watching maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 games, not really paying attention until October. Yeah. How do you think the inclusion of sabermetrics in cause now there are some broadcasts that yeah. are, mm-hmm. are are talking about a lot of managers, a lot of uh uh, uh you know they're they're in the ballparks. Some of them have some of the stats on their scoreboards sure. now. And it's yeah. that's, that's only gonna get more more prevalent as as years go on. So how do you think that has affected the the casual fans, you know, experience with baseball?
1: Yeah, well, I would say that for some casual fans, probably not at all, which is fine. You know, you can appreciate baseball the way you always did without getting into these stats. But yeah, it's definitely harder to avoid if you are trying to avoid it. Uh, it is on scoreboards, as you say, especially now with StatCast, you're getting, you know, how hard this ball was hit, how hard that ball was thrown, how hard that fielder was running. You know, I think that kind of thing is cool. Other people th- may think it's information overload, then they don't need to know that sort of thing. But I, I think it's valuable to know just because it is affecting what the teams look like on the field, and it is affecting who's on the team, right? Because every major league team has a department of stats or quantitative analysts more and more hired every year, and they they are making the decisions on who to sign and who to trade for and how much to pay them based in large part on these stats, which isn't to say that they've abandoned scouts or anything. Teams have more scouts than ever now too, but they are incorporating this information. And so, you know, guys used to get paid for RBIs. There's a a study at Baseball Prospectus that shows, you know, like based on stats, how likely were you to be brought back to a team that you played with the year before? And for most of baseball history, RBIs was like the, the dominant factor or batting average. So if you had a good batting average, good RBI total, You were more likely to be brought back. Now that's not the case. Now on base percentage is a a more telling stat. You know, how often you get on base is more tied to whether you will actually have a job next year. So even if you don't realize this, even if you don't know all this behind the stuff, behind the scenes number crunching that's going on, it's definitely how teams are being assembled these days. So, you know, it's important to know in that sense, I think.
2: I have an on-base percentage question that I still don't know the answer to. Okay. Um, if, if somebody's on first and you beat out the double play ball to, f- to f- like, they're thrown yeah. out, they're forced at second and right. you, you reach on a forced attempt...
1: That does not count for your
2: on base percentage? It does not. That doesn't no. make any sense.
1: <laughs> it, it doesn't. And there are other <laughs> cases like reached on error. If you reached on an error, that doesn't count. I understand count. that one. Well, that one I, I think should count because there is some skill to that. Like some, some guys reach on error more often because they hit the ball on the ground. You know, they hit the ball to a certain side of the field. They are fast. They can, you know, put sure. pressure on the fielders, that sort of thing. So, how does that not, I mean, that yeah. being fast for, for grounding under double play would that's be exactly, more. That's exactly it. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I can see the argument for that. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're on base, you're on base. So there are, there is a stat times on base that will literally say how many times you were standing on a base. <laughs> so that's <laughs> uh, a little different. Um, Fair enough. But that's yeah, funny. The, the standard on base percentage is, you know, it, it's supposed to convey how often you got. There through doing something good, right? Uh,
2: How is it not good that if you avoid a double play, that's like one of the best things to do? Well, you beat out the better throw to first,
1: get a hit, of course, but it's still (laughs) better that than the double play, sure. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, and and the advanced stats will take into account how often you ground into a double play, so it it won't just count the ground into double play as one out, it will count it as you know multiple outs because it, it was sure, so uh. More advanced stats will take that into account on base percentage. The the basic one doesn't. But you're right. I mean that that is there's some value to that. Definitely. All right. Yeah. All right, let so it be known. Let it be win. known that I was declared <laughs> I <won't> right
2: be, <laughs> about something.
0: That brings us to the end of part one of our chat with Ben. But be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes so you can hear all about Ben's experience running an independent baseball team. Thanks for listening. The home base for the clubhouse podcast is the bergino baseball clubhouse located at 67 east 11th street in new york city seriously folks this is without a doubt my favorite baseball spot in the country from the baseball inspired artwork on the walls to the one-of-a-kind memorabilia for sale and the amazing baseball fans that are just hanging out on the bleachers inside the store this place is the best if you can't make it into bergino's in person please visit bergino.com and pick up a gift for your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, really anybody in your life, or even just yourself. If you can make it in, make sure you mention the podcast and you'll get a free bag tag with any purchase. You can follow Anthony and I individually at Rounding Third MJ for me and at Albino Kid for Anthony. Thank you so much for listening. Have an awesome week.